Today's scripture readings are found in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 to 10, chapter 11, verses 11 to 15, and chapter 12, verses 12 to 25. Take a moment now to turn to the first text, chapter 10, verse 1 to 10, in your Bible to follow along. The readings will also be on the screen behind me. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzar, And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. And you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Chapter 11, verses 11 to 15. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Chapter 12, verses 12 through 25. Samuel said to the people, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him, 
and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people and his great name's sake, because he has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as, you, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Vivian. Well, hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, if you're new to the Parks Church, I want to just welcome you uh, to the Parks. And, and, and again, I know that's a lot of text this morning, and that's, that's purposeful. Again, if you're new, this is what we do at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we are making our way through First and Second Samuel. And even um, as much as I know you would love to hear Vivian read all of 10, all of 11, all of 12, like we're all like, yeah, I'd like that for my Christmas present, right? Like, uh, I would love to hear that. Um, this is still a lot of text, and so I think I'm going to do something I've never done before, and that's to cover three chapters. I might have done it when we walked through uh, Exodus together, but this is a lot, a lot of text that needs to be kept together. If we teach these chapters in a vacuum, we can sometimes miss the point of what's going on. And even as she was reading all of those texts and kind of the, the, the passages, uh, certain passages from the chapters, I hope you picked up some complexities, there are a, a lot of complexities in 1 Samuel moving forward, and the complexities stem from, if you haven't been with us, the request Israel has just made for a king, okay? Israel made a, a request for a, a king some chapters back that we walked through, and the request in of itself, a request for a king, was not the issue. In fact, in other places earlier in our Old Testament, God was like, I'm going to give you a king, and this is what the king's going to look like, this is what's going to happen with a king. So the request for a king isn't unbiblical, if you will, or disobedient in of itself. Where they went awry, where they went um, another direction, is when they asked for a king, you remember this in the teaching, like the nations. They asked for a king like the nation. So there was something with Israel that they perceived with their eyes when they looked around the nations around them, maybe the Philistines, maybe Egypt, maybe some of these other nations, and they were like, hey, wait a minute. Samuel, you know, I know it's been a time of peace and a time of flourishing, but we're not satisfied. 
We want more. We want to be like the nations. And one of the common denominators we see with the nations around us is, <laughs> wouldn't you know it? They have a king. So Samuel, give us a king like the nations. And the issue with that is essentially Israel was going, listen, our covenant distinctiveness, our distinctiveness as God's people, we're willing to sacrifice to go, we don't want to be distinct. We want to be like all the other nations around us. Our hearts are the same. Even today, being enticed, looking around. Even Tessa, Tessa read it from Psalm 73, our eyes looking, going, but why is this like this? And we make these wrong conclusions and these wrong jumps, don't we, often times. And so all of this together, we're going to see something. And I'm, I'm going to uh, kind of lead with one point. We're going to see the difference between what appears on the surface, so appearances, versus realities. Okay, that's essentially, that's the one point. So if you can remember that appearances versus realities. Because on the surface, if you just read this, you're potentially looking at Saul, right? Going, man, this guy's great. There's a military victory that happens in chapter 11. Chapter 10, he's anointed by Samuel. All things look like they're just going swimmingly well, right? Like, oh, this, is, this is wonderful for the nation of Israel. If that's truly what's going on, right? And if you just did a cursory reading, I think that's what you would assume. Chapter 12 doesn't make any sense. If that's really, if that's the reality of what's going on, chapter 12 and what Samuel says in his farewell address to the nation of Israel makes no sense whatsoever. Because Samuel essentially gets up after chapter 10 and chapter 11 and the anointing and the victory, and he says this. He says, y'all are doing wicked. Y'all need to be warned. This is not good. Appearances are not what they seem. That's what he gets up. That's essentially what chapter 12 is all about. And so uh, I want us to just faithfully unpack this because I think this is also going to expose many of us for what we, what we all often fall prey to. We're satisfied with what's on the surface. We're satisfied with mere appearances or what appears to be without actually allowing the Holy Spirit to take us deeper to the realities. And so you will need your Bible open if you can see it in this dark-filled room, right? You will need your, your notebooks out, okay? Because I'm going to be walking through these three chapters rather quickly. Um, the first thing I want to point out is this, that in ancient Judaism, right, that the nation in which we're, we find ourselves in Israel there is evidence that would-be kings, right? Saul at this point is a would-be king, would go through a three-part or three-series test, essentially, to prove their kingship. The first step is that they're anointed. They're anointed or designated as the potential leader. And this begins the, the, the series. And so we see that at the beginning of chapter uh, 10. Saul, uh, excuse me, Samuel anoints Saul, step one. Second step for any king would be that there was a demonstration of his ability as a warrior. You're going to have some battle or some, some way to test his, 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 his ability as a ruler, proof of his worthiness to be king. Chapter 11, right? Over the Ammonites. And then third, after that battle, after the anointing, after the battle, there was a coronation. There was this celebration, there was this final demonstration of permanently and charismatically confirming him as king. That's what take, is taking place in two of these, these chapters. 
We see Saul anointed. We see Saul's test of leadership. Did you hear it in chapter 11 when she read it? He defeats the Ammonites, right? And they have this coronation celebration. And these are high points for Saul. These are high points for Israel. And then chapter 12, as I said, Samuel gathers all the people of Israel and tells them his conclusion. And his conclusion is this. It's not what you think it would be. It's not celebration. It is this. And I'm going to lead with the conclusion. In spite of all the success, Israel, in spite of all the success, Saul, what we find is you are actually drifting further and further away from God. Your appearance is one thing. But the reality of what's taking place is something totally different. What appears on the surface is not what's actually going on with Saul. And if you've ever read 1 Samuel and you know the story of Saul, you've probably wrestled with some of these things, haven't you? You're like, he's, the Spirit of God is on him? He has another heart? He's prophesying? But then in the back of your mind, you know the rest of the story, right? You're like, but he ends up being a train wreck. He ends up being terrible for Israel. He ends up be not being the, the right king, right? Hands off to, to David, who is the anointed king, right? What is going on? Well, I think what Samuel is doing is giving a clear warning here. Be careful that you don't draw the wrong conclusions from success. And this isn't just a warning for Israel. This is a warning here for us as well. That external success does not always promise or mean internal faithfulness to God. Let me say that again in our McKinney Western church context. External success does not always equate internal faithfulness to God. Just because something is quote-unquote working doesn't mean that it's obedient or honoring to God or that God is blessing it. Many times we ascribe God's blessing to things that he's not a million miles involved in. And so we're forced to dig a little deeper, look under the surface. And to be honest, the original audience and readers of 1 Samuel would have picked up many of these things, much more than we do. So we have to unpack these. Well, Kyle, how are you making all these pretty large claims? It's in the text. And so let's look at chapter 10. The first thing after the anointing, um, Samuel says this. Look at it in verse 6. Samuel is saying this to Saul. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Whoa, what's going on there, right? And what we have take place in verse 9. Check this out. And when he turned, that's Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. We'll talk about that in a second. And all these signs came to pass that day when they came up to Gibeah. Behold, a group of prophets met with him and the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And we're like, yes, it's happening. That's exactly what Samuel said would take place. Or hold on. Is it? What did Samuel say? Look at the text would come upon him. The spirit of the Lord. Another word for Lord there is Yahweh. And then below, what came upon Saul? The spirit of God. Now you're like, Kyle, same, same, right? No, not at all. If you remember several weeks back when we were looking in 1 Samuel about the Ark of the Covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant, when it's in the hands of Israel, when it's blessing Israel, when it's flourishing, when there's peace and shalom, it's always called the Ark of the Lord. 
Remember I made this distinction, it was the ark of the Lord. And then what happens when they begin to objectify the ark? When they begin to use it as a commodity, it switches over. The author switches over and begins to call it the ark of God. When the Philistines capture it, and never once when it's in the Philistines' hands who captures the ark, does he ever call it the ark of the Lord. He always calls it the ark of God. And so here we see that Samuel has said, listen, the, 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 the spirit of the Lord is going to come upon this king. It's going to come upon Saul. But what we have in turn is the author artfully, artfully casting a shadow over Saul's moment of glory by referring to this divine presence differently than what it should be. He said, Kyle, how are you making this jump from Genesis all the way through 2 Kings? The word, the spirit of the Lord appears five times over Israelites, five times. And it always appears to men who bring blessing, who bring peace, who bring flourishing to Israel. One time, only one other time in our Bible is the spirit of God used and called upon when it comes upon someone. You know who that is? Balaam. Balaam, it says that the Spirit of God came upon Balaam. And if you know about Balaam, Balaam is a non-Israelite. This is in Numbers chapter 24 and Numbers chapter 31, okay? It says that the Spirit of God came upon Balaam. And if you know what happens with Balaam, ultimately what happens is he brings harm to Israel. So the author with the original audience is going, hey, watch out. This guy has the Spirit of God, but you know when the Spirit of God falls on someone, it ultimately leads to the detriment of Israel, not the flourishing. The Spirit of the Lord leads to flourishing, but the Spirit of God will lead to detriment. And so you begin to hear these rumblings of an issue. Another place I think this is proven, the Spirit of God falls on, well, let me deal with the uh, verse 9. God gave him another heart real quick. God gave him another heart. I was always taught that verse essentially this way. God gave him a new heart. God gave Saul a new heart. That's not what the text says. The text very clearly says he has another or a different heart because people will wrestle with this and go, isn't this Saul's salvation moment? Isn't this conversion, right? Like this is a, a new heart, kind of that Ezekiel stuff, a heart of flesh, a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. No, not at all. That would be a new heart. This is talking about God giving him a different heart. Now, there are some thoughts that swirl around this, but the, the other heart that's being talked about here is that God gives Saul a heart to actually lead, to govern, to be an administrator over the people. So he now has a different heart. He is a, a different man. He's a new man. The prior Saul, the Saul that we see that's maybe a little bit more passive, a little bit more timid, it's like the text is saying this. God has given him a different heart. He now has the ability to lead, the ability to administrate, but whether or not God's presence is there is debatable, right? And so he is this different man. He does not have a new heart. You say, Kyle, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. Well, let's look at how this different heart plays itself out. Verse 16 of chapter 10. So Saul has been anointed. The spirit of God is on him. He has a different heart, right? If he has a new heart, do you think it would respond like this? And Saul said to his uncle, because his uncle's like, hey, man, where you been? What have you been up to? What about those donkeys? Remember that from a couple weeks ago? He told us plainly, so this is what Saul says. He told us plainly, talking about Samuel, that the donkeys had been found. His uncle's like, hey, what'd Samuel say to you? And all Saul responds back to him is, the donkeys were taken care of. We found them. And the author of 1 Samuel calls this out. 
and says, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Saul intentionally deceiving. Saul intentionally leaving out what is most weighty of what Samuel has told him. It's like Saul's just like, well, yeah, 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 yeah. They found the donkeys. I just wanted you to know that. You left something out, Saul. You left something out that Samuel anointed you as the soon coming king of Israel. Why? The author, once again, is setting us up to see that Saul is not going to be about the kingdom of God. Saul is going to be about building his own kingdom. And this will give way chapter after chapter as we venture into 1 Samuel. The kingdom of self or the kingdom of Saul. That kingdom, let me tell you, just like all of us who are building kingdoms of self, the way that that kingdom is primarily built is always through deceit and dishonesty. Half-truths. Sleight of hand. The kingdom of God, which is opposed to the kingdom of self, is the kingdom of truth. The kingdom of light. The kingdom of, of honesty. And so the author is setting us up with this tension. Hey, look below the surface. Don't just see the anointing on the surface. Don't just see the prophesying. Don't just see the spirit of God on the surface. Don't just see this different heart. You got to see it for what it is. You got to see it for the movements that are actually taking place. And then we get to chapter 11, which is this battle. The Ammonites, they, they come in and it's like they're going to take this section of Israel. And, and, and for whatever reason, they, they give a little break. Chapter 11, when Saul brings about this, this, this military presence, do you think that's a win or a loss? What is it on the surface? It's a win, right? Yeah. This one might be more soccer terms. Might be a draw. How are you getting that this is a draw for Saul? Back up to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Samuel is told by the Lord that the king, here's what he will do. This will be, if you will, his chief responsibility. He will deliver the people from the hand of the Philistines. This is chapter 9, verse 16. The king, the real king, this is what he's going to do. He'll deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That's going to be his step number two, if you will. That's going to be his proving ground for kingship is going to be this battle against the Philistines in the victory. Remember that. How will this king be identified? Victory over the Philistines. Now back to chapter 10. After that, Samuel saying to Saul, you shall come up to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of Philistines. So he's talking to Saul. And Samuel's going, you're going to come up to this place, this very specific location, and guess who's going to be there? Guess what's going to be there? A garrison of Philistines. It's almost like Samuel is setting him up to go, this is going to be your battle. This is going to be what shows the people that, that you are their king. This is what the responsibility God has given you. Saul, this is what you are to execute, overthrow, slay the Philistines. The Lord's given you everything you need. But what does Saul do? He walks away. He doesn't take the garrison. He doesn't even attack it. It's not even like He doesn't even attempt it. And what's even stranger about this passage is if you keep reading in chapter 10, 
there is this scene, and I've heard some weird sermons preached about this scene, so I'll, I'll try to bring as much clarity as I can, um, where Saul is hidden in the baggage, right? Look, look at it in your text. It's verses uh, 20, 21. And, but when they sought him, meaning Saul, he could not be found. Like, wait, you lost your king? You lost your anointed king? And so they inquired again of the Lord, which, let me just pause here. I didn't say this in the 9 a.m. Like, do you not see how dependent they actually are on God? Like, they're like, we want a king. We want a king. He's anointed, right? And then they're like, they cast lots for him. It's chosen. And then they're like, we can't find him. <laughs> and so who do they have to go to? Yeah, the, the actual king to inquire. And so they inquire of, of the Lord. And the Lord said to them, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Do you see that there? Um, now, the, this, this baggage is not like your carry-on suitcases, all right? When it talks about baggage, it's talking about military equipment. Military equipment that they would have moved around so that they wouldn't have been so vulnerable to the Philistines or any other nation's attack. And so here you have Saul hiding, placed with military equipment. Now, I've heard some sermons to go, look, leaders, don't be hiding in the baggage, all right? That's not what this is about. Saul was not fearful in this moment. This, if anything, is almost a, a, a kind of a, a brighter moment for Saul. Saul is a, a physically imposing guy. It says that in the other, other chapters that we've walked through, right? He stood heads above the other people. So imagine they're casting lots to decide who their king is. And here's Saul, this one who's physically imposing, standing over that, going, I see you casting that lot. Make sure it casts right. You know, like, this is Saul in more humility going, listen, we're going to let God's will play out however it plays. And whatever lots are cast will be, I'll be over here. Now, what strikes me about this, though, is that literally Saul is surrounded by everything he needs in this moment in proximity to the Philistines. He has military equipment, and yet he goes, huh, wonderful. And Samuel, I'm sure, is like, are you missing it, man? Your whole purpose is to defend us from the Philistines, and they're right there, and you're surrounded by the equipment. You have them in. Go take them. But Saul does what? Saul does whatever he wants. Why? Because he's building his kingdom. Even unknowingly at this moment, Saul heads back, and this is what chapter 11 says at the beginning, he heads back and he begins to work the field. That's where they find him when the Ammonites attack, right? He's working the field. He's doing what he wants. You see, this will be the definition of Saul's life from here on. God will put something in front of him to go do, to conquer, to live, to turn away from. And he always finds a way to center it back on himself. All along the way, he'll go, look at what I did. And so, listen to me, Saul does some good stuff. But he always points the arrow back at him. Look at how well I defeated this. Look at, look at how I defeated the Ammonites. You say, but Kyle, in chapter 11, he stops some things and he turns attention to the Lord. He does, you're right. He absolutely does. But what we will see from, from here on with Saul is that it always comes back to self. That God, in calling him in obedience, will deflect his disobedience towards what he's doing really well. And so before we get really you know, hard on, on, on Saul, 
Let's think about how often we do that. In this room this morning, God has been calling, leading some of you in certain areas of obedience, in worship, and faithfulness, things to pick up or things to set down in your life. And what happens is you deflect to other things. Yeah, no, God, I know you've been kind of drawing me and calling me to that. But look, I, I give 10% of my income. Doesn't that allow me to live in disobedience over here? You deflect, you go, well, well, I, I know you've asked me that, but hey, I attended church this Sunday morning. Maybe you're in a relationship and God's like, I, I, I've asked you to live in that relationship differently. I'm not talking about a marriage relationship. I, I've asked you to live in that relationship differently. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know you've said that, but we go to church together. You deflect. And what do we typically deflect to? We deflect to things that come more naturally for us. Maybe for some of you, you're just more bent toward generosity. And so you go, but I, look how generous I am. And God goes, I know, I hear you. Yes, that's right and that's good. But I've called you to speak to your neighbor. I've called you on mission. I've called you to grow in compassion and empathy. But we deflect. Saul is king of deflecting. And what does that come down to, church? What that comes down to is this, one word, control. Control. Whose kingdom is being built? And who is really king? You see, that's what we have going on in chapter 10 and chapter 11. And that's how Samuel's warning in chapter 12 is understood. Samuel's warning going, don't let appearances fool you. Don't let the victories that have come cause you to drift away from God. You see, on the surface, listen, all these victories, I'm sure for the Israelites, they're like, this proves we were right the whole time, Sam. This proves that we got the king we wanted. He defeated the Ammonites. He was anointed. The spirit of God is upon him. Like, come on, this proves us to be right. And Samuel says, slow down. Slow down and peer past appearances. A great start does not guarantee a faithful finish. Everything seems to be going so well for Saul on the surface, physically, right? Spiritually, maybe even some humility in there with him. He's got a military leader and a great victory under his belt. We can look in chapter 11 and go, man, this guy's hardworking. He's, he's anointed king and he's, he's laboring in the field. But I'd caution us like Samuel does and say no amount of past successes, spiritual or otherwise, guarantee future faithfulness in our lives or in our church. That there is a tendency in all of us to coast in our lives, especially in seasons of peace and calm and potential victory, where we just coast and we forget the reality that the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is one that is lived by day, by day, by day. That every day is a new day of worship. That every day is a new day of faithfulness and commitment to the cause of Christ. Eugene Peterson in his book, um, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, has this quote, and I've used it before, but I think this is spot on to where we live. He says, there is great, there's a great market for religious experience in our world. You want to talk about experience? You want to talk about, yeah, woo, excitement and enthusiasm? You will find that around religious things, and there's a great market for it. 
There is little enthusiasm, however, for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. There's little inclination toward that. There's little draw, there's little excitement, there's little enthusiasm toward the thing that God has actually called us to. And what he has actually called us to is a deep life of devotion to him. One marked by holiness in righteousness, in faithfulness, in love. We are in grave danger when we begin to elevate external successes above our desire for internal holiness and faithfulness. I've heard it all before, like the arguments. Well, well, who, can, who can argue with what's going on with this group of people? I mean, look, look at the crowds. Look, look, look at the enthusiasm. Look at the salvations. Like this is just in the church, y'all. I'm not talking outside. I'm talking about the church. Look at what, look at what God is doing. Are you sure? I think Samuel would slow us down and say, are you sure? You might be right. And listen, this isn't a call for you to be cynical or for you to be critical. This is a call for you to be discerning. This is a call for us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. To not just judge something based upon its appearances or its externalities, but what is really going on in the heart. Many of you listen to a podcast, and I listen to it because you asked if I listened to it, about a very prominent church in the early 2000s, in our movement, in our network. A church that ultimately fell, right? Had all these external successes. And listen, do I believe people came to faith? Absolutely, I do. Do I believe people were genuinely baptized? I absolutely do. I think God was working in spite of what was going on below the surface. And he does that. You're going to see that even here with Saul and through 1 Samuel. But the, the argument the whole time as these little yellow flags were going off and some red flags being raised was, look at this, look at the crowds. Look at the number of people coming to faith when all under the surface there was an air of pride, a lack of humility, a lack of holiness and faithfulness unto the real kingdom. What was being built was the kingdom of man and not the kingdom of God. And it was being flipped on them. And so we have to discern, we have to have our eyes open by the Holy Spirit to see. And that is what Samuel is warning them. Samuel's going, Israel, at the greatest moments of external victory and success, here's what your tendency is. Your tendency is to be least dependent upon God in those moments. You know how we tell if something is truly from God? Here's how we tell primarily. Is humility rising or is pride rising? Is the name of God being lifted and elevated or is the name of a man, a movement, or a church But this is true not only of corporate life in the church, this is true of our individual lives. That when things are going well, we struggle with having a real sustained vision for God. Samuel calls all the people of Israel together at the height of success, and he does give this warning. And I know this seems like Merry Christmas to you all, right? He gives this warning, and this warning to all of us today. That those of us in this room most susceptible to spiritual drift, those of us most susceptible to just looking at externalities and not really digging deep into walking with Christ, are those of us in here not walking through hardship, 
Not those in here of us struggling. Um, not those of us in here who have just gotten the diagnosis. Those of us most susceptible to drift in this room are those of us who find ourselves in, quote-unquote, a season of calm. And this is where, as Tessa said, even in reading Psalm 73, we can settle for a pseudo-peace. We can find ourselves believing in this false peace or this false calm. And Samuel's not the only one that warns about this. Our Bible warns about this over and over again, but maybe one of the clearest ones is found in the book of Deuteronomy. And listen to this and see if this doesn't hit, us, hit, me, hit me right between the eyes. This is verse 11 begins. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and, and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Like that's where we live, y'all. I've pastored in McKinney for a decade. That is where we live. I've lived here for 12 years. We live in abundance. And notice he's not condemning abundance. What he's condemning is our forgetfulness. He says, then your heart will be lifted up. And here it is. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Beware, this is verse 17, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant. There it is. The whole foundation by which we stand on all these things, the whole foundation that Samuel is, is standing on is this, the covenant love of God. The covenant-keeping love of God to us as new covenant believers is found in Jesus Christ. He's going, this is your foundation that you don't have anything. You don't have anything that God hasn't given to you down to your very breath. And all of that was given for you to steward and use for his glory, but we forget. And it goes on in verse 19, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods, you go after the wealth. You begin to serve the crops of your field. You begin to worship them. Here's the warning. I warn you today that you shall surely perish. That's the same warning Samuel gave. You see, we need a king. It's not that we don't need a king. Israel had a king. They had a king in Yahweh. But even Yahweh himself said that there's going to be a king to come. A king that which the government will have no end. His rule will have no end. You know that? That's the prophecy in Isaiah. Make no mistake, that king is Jesus. Jesus went through the same three-step process that Saul went through here. David, by the way, the king in between these two kings that we're talking about right now, he's going to go through the same process. But Jesus is actually going to prove to be faithful. Jesus, his anointing, that first step, was at his baptism when John the Baptist goes, the Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And how do we see him being anointed? It's not by a man. It's not by a group of people. It's by God himself splitting open the heavens, looking down at his son at that day. And he goes, that is my son whom I'm well pleased. And you know this powerful symbol where the dove falls upon him. Shalom, peace. And where did the Spirit lead Jesus after his anointing? Do you remember? 
the wilderness. The wilderness there where he is tempted. He goes toe-to-toe battle for battle with the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, who tempts him with the word of God. Tempts him to leave his post. Tempts him greater than we've ever been tempted. But what does Jesus do? Jesus proves what? Victorious. Faithful. And he will live the next three and a half years of his life, Jesus, proving that he is the king. Proving, winning the battle time and time again against Satan. And then his coronation. You know what his coronation is? His coronation is when he's abandoned by everyone, his disciples included. The crowds go away, that everybody on the surface goes, this guy, they can't perceive, this guy, no way is he a king. No way is he Messiah. Their eyes on the surface are going, I see this, I see where this is headed, and it goes where none of them thought it would go. He's pinned to a cross. And his coronation looks like this, that him being robed, it literally says that in your gospels, he's robed, he's clothed with these garments. And oh yes, there's a crown placed on his head, but that crown is not one of gold and jewels. It's one of thorns that they press in. And in mocking, what do they say? What do they hang over his head? Mockingly. Here's the king of the Jews. Little did they know that they were prophetically announcing, there's the king of the Jews. Here's the king of kings. Appearances, anything but royal. Anything that we should applaud. They pull this king down, put him in a tomb. And you know the rest of the story. That after three days, this king who they thought they had murdered, they thought they had done away with this one who was talking about his kingship, who was talking about sitting at the right hand of God, they thought they had done away with him. They didn't have the final word, did they? That the same mouth that opened when his baptism occurred opened in that tomb and said, live, breathe. And Jesus rose alive, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And his coronation was complete as he stood or sat next to the Father. That's our king. That's the one whose kingdom he's invited us into. And and Samuel says this. He says literally what the angels say. This is chapter 12, verse 20. Do not be afraid. That's what he's, look at it in your Bible. Samuel's going, listen, I know you're afraid. I know you know that you've done this evil, but do not be afraid. Why? Because God has made a way. The same thing is true for you and me today. Listen, we have all sinned. That's what Paul says in Romans. You've all sinned. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. But listen, do not be afraid because our God has made a way. He set up a king, and this king is about the work of salvation and redemption, about leading you away from the greatest enemy of your soul, and it's available to you. And Samuel ends with this line, for consider what great things God has done for you. So this morning we come as a people considering the great things God has done for us in sending Christ Jesus. Listen, what Saul illuminates in this text is our need, our desperate need for a real king, a savior to come, one that is going to be faithful despite our unfaithfulness. This is the word and warning of Samuel. And listen, don't get caught up in mere appearances. Get caught up in the real thing. And the real thing is known when you actually slow yourself down to consider what God has done. And so this morning we're going to do that as we come to these tables of communion.
we're going to consider what God has done in Christ Jesus. And for some of you, you're going to consider that and you're going to receive Christ. For some of you, you've done that years and years ago. But this morning, again, remember the life of a disciple is lived day by day by day. The gospel being new to us every day. And this morning, I pray that it is fresh and new to you. And so hosts, I want you to get ready as I pray for us. Something else that the Lord is doing is that some of you, the peace on obedience, the Lord is really calling you into. Not like he's not calling us into obedience, but specifically into some areas of obedience. And maybe it's risk. Maybe it's fleeing sin, fleeing away from something, fleeing to something. I'm not sure. But don't delay. Stop deflecting. Stop making excuses by pointing to other ways in your life that you're being obedient. God's going, no, I want 100% of you. Let me pray. Father, quicken our minds and our hearts to hear the voice of the Spirit this morning. Forgive us for the areas where we have just been so satisfied with mere appearances. Forgive us for the shallowness of our lives, where we long to live lives deeply rooted in you, not to find ourselves like Saul building our own kingdoms. We want to be participants in the kingdom of God because that's where peace is actually found. Father, I pray that as we come to these tables, we would be reminded, we would consider again anew what you have given to us in Christ. Let this never grow old, Lord. I love you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Please lead us, hosts.